All right, so as uh, you guys may remember, if you've been here, uh, we have just been recently traveling with Peter, and uh, the last story we were in, Peter stepped into a crazy cool story, right? Awesome stuff. For us, it was awesome because we're reading these stories in hindsight, but for Peter and for the guys that were with Peter, it was a big deal, and it wasn't such an awesome story at first because it was God calling Peter and these other guys into a place that was unthinkable. Peter was called into Cornelius's house. He was a Gentile centurion in Caesarea. Peter is called in there to go and share the gospel with the Gentile and his family and friends. And Peter steps into that story and we see an exceptional and wondrous reality born out of that story, right? That God's promise Uh, to us that he would come and redeem the human story, not just one group of people, but the human story, this is the moment that the reality of that is solidified for us and we go, wow, it's it's really there. The, The gospel is for the Gentiles. The spirit of God is for the Gentiles. It was a big deal. But for Peter, going into that space was against all better judgment during the context in which he lived. This was not a good idea. There was nothing about it that was a good idea. Nobody in his circle would have said to him, that is a good idea. Everybody, every wise counsel, everything would have probably said to him, have you thought this through? Have you prayed about this? Like for months. I mean, did God, you know, come on. A Gentile's house. This is, this is bad. And the reason that it was a, a, a difficult judgment call in terms of really against better judgment is because of the history of the reality of what God had unfolded in his story so far in the human story and specifically in the Jewish story, right? So, so if you remember... Uh, In the very beginning, God, after we fell out of right relationship with God in the garden, God spoke promises over the human race. To Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, he said, "Uh, I know that you've fallen out, but don't worry, my story's not over. I will not abandon you. I am coming to get you. There were promises made to Adam and Eve that God would come and rescue the whole uh, human race of all nations as he comes to find them, not just one nation. He says to Adam and Eve, through you guys, uh, I, I will come. And then later on in the story, through Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, he does it again. He says to Abraham, I will bless all nations through you. And so there is this distinct promise early on in the story that God is saying, I am not here for one nation, I am here for all nations and peoples, and I'm coming to rescue and redeem the human story and make that different. So we're entering into God's story with that in mind, and then it seems that God's plan to affect that redemptive story takes a very strange twist, uh, at least from our perspective. Now, where we are, we see the bigger picture, but there, it took a sort of a strange twist. After the Tower of Babel experience, where God took the whole human race and divided them into language groups so that they would no longer be this force against him and really self-destruct, that after that, what God did is he came and took one of the language groups, 
one of the nations, the nation of Israel in this case, and he pulled them out and separated them from the other nations, right? We know this. And then what he did was he began to speak into their lives, protect them, preserve them, give them instruction, help them live on planet Earth in a way that demonstrated what it looked like when you belonged to God and did things his way rather than belonging to self and doing things your way. And as the other nations were going through the incredible turmoil that comes with building our own kingdoms, the Jewish nation was preserved by God. God's intent and heart for that from the beginning, he declared it throughout Scripture, was to show himself through the Jewish people to all the nations and prepare the nations for the promise of redemption that would come through Jesus. And so he separates them for that intent. Now, the trouble is that over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, the Jewish people who are constantly separated out, told, don't go into the territories of the enemy, don't talk to them, don't touch bad things, unclean things, it's going to influence you. Because remember, they were in essence unredeemed in terms of the internal realities of their soul because they, God was their, their God, but the Spirit of God had not come to them and Jesus had not yet died for them. Big long story for another time. But the reality is, their power to overcome unclean things and sin was uh, zero. So if they were in it, it would overcome them. And we saw that a number of times, right? So over a period of time, from an observational standpoint, the Jewish people, seeing the expression of sin and death and the enemy in the Gentile nations, started assuming that the Gentile nations were their enemy. They started assuming that the Gentile nations were the problem. The Gentile nations, if, if, if they were just gone, everything would be fine because they're the ones that keep messing up or keep standing as a potential for mess up for the Jewish people. So what God intended to demonstrate to the nations, the Jewish people started receiving as, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, stay away from them. They are the enemy. And so by the time we step into the story of Jesus coming to planet Earth, we see a Jewish people that are very clearly in a place where it's like, look, you, you just don't go to the enemy, talk to the enemy, step into the enemy's world. That is bad, period. It's dangerous and you don't do it. The Gentiles are the enemy. There was a hatred toward them. Now it's in this context of Gentile bad hatred that uh, God comes to Peter and says, I want you to go to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and go hang out with him and have a meal with them. Whoa, whoa, I'll go to the house, but eat their food? I mean, there's shrimp in there. I can't touch that stuff. Like, it's, it's a big deal. And so he calls Peter out to the Gentile's house. Peter goes to the Gentile's house because of a very distinct calling. And when he gets there, he shares the gospel with the Gentiles with the assumption, or perhaps just kind of waiting to see. I mean, if I were Peter, I'd be like, I'm going to share the gospel. I'm fine with that, God. But I mean, these are the pagans. They're not going to receive the gospel. And then what happens? You remember the gospel goes. It's unbelievable. The Spirit of God comes down tangibly on the Gentiles. The Gentiles are brought in, grafted into the story. They are part of the story. And suddenly, the fulfillment of the promises of God to Adam and to Abraham are realized before our very eyes. Like, God is actually not just for the Jewish people. He is for the human story. He is for the Gentiles. And P.S., just a quick parenthesis, 
When we say he's for the Gentiles, that's most of us in this room, okay? I mean, a few of you here have some Jewish blood in you, love you, that's awesome. But thank God he wasn't just for you, but he was for us as well. So when we say God is for the Gentiles, we ought to all be having a little leap in our heart going, thank God he's for the Gentiles, because otherwise we would still be the enemy, right? And so we see the fulfillment of this incredible promise of God that he's for the Gentiles, he's coming for us, he's redeeming us, he's restoring us, he's calling us into his story. We're part of the carriers of the gospel. Really, really big deal. And when a really big deal happens, word gets out, doesn't it? Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 11. And we're going to jump into the story right at this point where we see the realities of Cornelius and the story in Cornelius' life starting to spill out into the greater story. Page 598 of the Bibles we have under the seats or Acts chapter 11, verse 1 in the Bible that you brought with you. Okay, so Acts chapter 11, verse 1 simply says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So uh, there is a rumor traveling around, okay? The rumor is that there are some Gentiles, pagans, that have received the word of God. And the rumor is that when they received the word of God, they responded positively toward it. They don't know the full story yet, but the, the, the apostles and the churches throughout Judea are like, have you heard? Have you heard? This is news that spreads, folks. You have to understand this line reminds us of how big a deal it was to the Jewish people that God was also for the Gentiles. This was like unthinkable to them. So as it's spreading out, they're like, oh my gosh, could it be true? Is it true? What's going on? Since that is likely the reality that this rumor is spreading and everybody's hearing about it, I better go to the, the church in Jerusalem and I better go tell them what's going on just so that this doesn't kind of get out of hand and start uh, creating all kinds of stories. So it says in verse two, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Can I just stop there for one second? The circumcision party. Who came up with this name? I mean, for real. I, I think to myself, I get that you want to make sure that you understand that you're Jewish, but really, we went up to the circumcision party. I mean, point out the obvious. And so I just, when I read that, I just stopped for a second. I'm like, that is a weird name. Somebody was up at 3 a.m. when they came up with that name. I'm just saying. So he goes to the circumcision party. Now, just to be clear, the reason it is important that Luke is specifying this particular party is because Luke does not want us to think that uh, these guys, that Peter and his friends are going to the Jewish high council, to the Sanhedrin, to the, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is a completely different context, okay? He is not going to Jerusalem to meet with the Jewish people that do not know Jesus. He's going to meet with the council here, uh, the, 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 the party that is the circumcision party. This is the group of people that were now in leadership over the church of Christ that was being born out of the Jewish context. You with me? So he's going to the Jewish, uh, the church in Jerusalem. These are guys that know Jesus. These are guys that are for Jesus, and he's going to tell them what Jesus is doing through the Holy Spirit as he's moving into a new world. So Peter gets there, and what's the very first thing that happens when Peter gets there? They criticize him, and this is what they say. Look, they criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. 
I love that, adding the eat. You know, it's like, you didn't just go to them. I mean, we could, we could give you that. I was passing by Cornelius' house. I kind of tripped and fell into the door. I quickly removed myself. It's like, no, 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 no. We heard the story. You went in their house. Somebody was watching. You ate with these people. And I love that the uncircumcised, the pagans, the Gentiles. What were you thinking, Peter? That's the, that, that's the tone of this sentence. What were you thinking, I mean, I get that the gospel went forth and all that stuff, but why would you go? Now, can I just say this? Sometimes we look at these moments and go, I can't believe the church in Jerusalem criticized Peter. I mean, didn't they get it? Didn't they see the bigger picture? Didn't they understand what God was up to? No, they didn't, actually. I think it's a completely valid criticism in the context that it's in. I mean, if you had lived your entire life protecting the realities of God from the dark world, would you not look at Peter and go, I'm sorry, I'm confused. What were you thinking, man? Are you crazy? You can't do that. That's not okay. That's against better judgment. Why would you do such a thing? We, we find ourselves on occasion when we step into certain things that God has called us into and to the rest of the world, it seems that it is against better judgment. Sometimes when we step into those things, we get the same kind of reaction legitimately from people kind of going, from an observational standpoint, what you're doing is stupid. Right? I mean, we get that. Uh, we were, uh, Brooke and I were on a retreat this last week, a spiritual retreat that was uh, unbelievable and amazing to be at, and just a place where we could kind of go and meet with God and spend time with God alone and together. And when the retreat started, the very first evening, it was a pastor's retreat with four other couples, pastors and their spouses, and Brooke and I, and the leaders of this little retreat time started the first night around the fire, and they said, listen, um, I just want to ask you a question, like, why, why are you here? What is it you want here? What, what are you hoping God will do here? And right when, right when Steve asked the question, we were going around the circle, I, I sat back and I'm like, Brooke's going to cry. I mean, she's going to cry. You guys may as well get used to it because she's, she's going to cry. But it wasn't feeling this, oh my gosh, my wife's going to cry. I can't believe it. I, I almost wanted to just put my hand up for a second and say, um, just so you guys know, uh, Brooke will cry a lot this week, but it's totally okay because it's good, it's good for her, and it's good for her to cry. We've worked through a lot, a lot of the crying stuff, but she does cry because we're living a heavy life right now with a lot going on. And though Brooke is indeed the strongest woman I know and have watched her do things that are impossible in the story, and that the crying is not out of weakness, but it is out of the weight of mission right now, I want to explain all this. It's okay. You, you don't have to like feel bad, like run over, like, oh my gosh, you guys are broken. It's like, no, 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 it's just, it's just heavy right now, okay? So I knew. So we went around the circle. I'm like, yeah, 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 to talk. And, and Brooke, she didn't say the first word, and she starts crying. And I'm like, ta-da! So I'm like, well, and then this, you know, the story starts unfolding as we're spending time together at this retreat. You know, what we've done, we had these four beautiful children, then we adopted these four beautiful children, and then the four beautiful children and the four beautiful children turned into a unbeautiful mess and we're, we're making it beautiful again at some time and it's good and you're going through it and and I was waiting for it because you know what is the next valid question uh, are you guys crazy I mean no wonder you're crying I mean who does that that's did you think that through did you did you pray about it well it came in this form Steve is an amazing man at the retreat uh, later on in the retreat I'm standing in the kitchen with him and he asks me this question he goes, uh, just out of curiosity, the adoption of the four children into a home of four, was that like a biblical conviction? 
yeah, yeah. See, what he's asking is, um, I want to know, did you like just read the Bible and feel convicted and so you went and d- adopted four children into your home? That, that older, was that the plan? Because you could tell what he was trying to say very nicely was, if it was a biblical conviction, I just want to dare to argue with you a bit, right? Because the Bible doesn't necessarily demand that you go do that. That's crazy. Look what you've done to your wife, right? I mean, I, I felt like all that was coming, you know? And so I'm standing in the kitchen, and it was a great moment for me once again to be reminded. And I looked at Steve, and I said, Steve, if this was a biblical conviction, it was the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life. Was, no, that's not enough. Am I convicted by Scripture that we should be involved in the lives of orphans? Absolutely. Am I convicted by Scripture that we ought to consider every one of us stepping into an orphan's life on a high level through safe families or foster care or adoption? Yes, I am convicted that we ought to explore that. Everyone should assume that that may be part of their story. But am I convicted that the Bible says I should adopt four children into a home of four and work through that? No. It doesn't say it. Don't do it. It's not a good idea. It's not in the Bible. Okay? So why then? Why then did we do that? And I was able in the kitchen to say to Steve, no, 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 Steve. This wasn't a biblical conviction. This was an act of God in our lives, tangibly and clearly through a process of three years showing us what he wanted us to do. The only reason we stepped into this story was because the God we serve showed us that he had chosen for us Eight children, not four, and that four of those eight children were not currently in our home and they needed to be, and that he sent us out to get them. And when I die, I will have a conversation with God about how crazy this idea was. But I'm just saying it's his fault, not mine. She's not crying because of me. She's crying because of God. So just to be clear, okay? And so uh, it was awesome because in that moment, as I'm telling that story and he's looking, it is that moment where you realize as you're listening into somebody's stupid plan that you suddenly go, oh, what makes this plan not stupid is that God in a very distinct way was calling you into something very big. And the only time you find yourselves in a Gentile house with the unclean people eating shrimp is when God says, go there, I'm going to do this. So in the same way that I explained to Steve, no, 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 this wasn't my idea. It was God's. Here's how I know. Here's what he did. That's exactly what Peter now does to the circumcised party. Look, it says, and Peter began and explained it to them in order. So literally he sequences it out. He goes, no, 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 you, hold on. You guys think I went to a Gentile's house because I thought that was a good idea? And I ate food with them because I thought that was a good idea? No, 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 no. No, we blame God on this one. Let me explain. So he goes, look, I was on a roof and I was praying and uh, this vision came to me. You can read it right there. And God brought the sheet down and there was unclean food and clean food. And he said, kill and eat. And I said, by all means, I will not. And then he did it again. And I said, uh, 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 I'm not touching that stuff. And he did it again. And I'm like, I'm not eating the unclean food, okay? So Peter actually tells them, I said no three times to this story. You got to understand, I didn't want to go to Cornelius' house. I didn't want to eat his food. I told God, no, I know this is a test. I'm not going to the dark places. I'm a good Jewish boy. But then God said to me, we are done with that story now. 
what I have declared to be clean, don't you dare declare unclean. I'm going to use you to clean up some mess. So I'm sending you in. Do not distinguish. And Peter actually bothers to say, in order, take a look at this. He says this. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up into heaven. And behold, at the very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And then he says, look at verse 12. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me when we entered the man's house. I love that Peter goes, and in case you think I was stupid, these six guys were with me when it happened. You can ask any one of them. They were there. They saw it. It's like me going, uh, you can talk to some people in my church. You can talk to my parents. You can talk to some other people that know our story. And they'll all go, yes, they were crazy. But it was because God told them, I'm, I'm telling you. And so Peter goes, look, this was the Spirit of God sending us out to this place. And then he says this, verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, that is the spirit of God coming on them, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's Peter's big closer for the speech. Look, here's the deal. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It was against my better judgment too, just so we're clear. I'm a half-intelligent Peter. But God called me into this distinctly and specifically, and when I went, I saw God do this. He brought the Holy Spirit on them. So, just so we're clear, when God is doing something like that, who am I to tell God that's a stupid story? See, I'm I'm not going to do that. It may not seem the wisest to us, but God made it clear that this time he is unfolding something bigger. When I stood in the kitchen with Steve and I was done telling him our story, how God showed us little beautiful Rahel and then brought Fitzsimpty into our story and said, she is your daughter. And then brought Mahari and Burhanu into the story and said, these are your sons. And brought us together. And I shared the story with him. You saw that look in the eyes of people when they moved from, this is a completely crazy idea. I think you've overdone it. You're killing yourself to this. Wow. Wow. God is big. And he's called you into big things Let's get together and see if we can help you work in this place instead of get out of this place. You see, when you've done something insane that was bad, people want to go, can I rescue you from it? Because you should never have been in it. But when God has called you into something, people suddenly go, how can I step in it with you and help you live there because clearly this is what God wants. And suddenly there is an awe of what God is doing in and through us. And look what happens in this story. It's exactly what occurs here. It says here, um, when they heard these things, verse 18, they fell silent. I love that. They just just stood there. I've seen this before when you tell a story that's kind of crazy and people are waiting to prove you wrong. And then when they're done hearing you and they see what God is doing, they just stand there and stare at you for a minute. 
and you're waiting for them to decide if you're crazy or if God is awesome. They're not sure. And then this is declared. Watch. They, they sat in silence and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What a declaration. What an incredible awakening. What a moment in time for the circumcised party, the church in Jerusalem, the leadership of the current reality of the unfolding kingdom of God. And they sit in awe of Peter's story and they go, what seemed to be against better judgment and in most contexts would be against better judgment now is seen as a glorious and wondrous story of God that is bigger than we could have imagined or asked for. And suddenly we go, you mean the promises of God to Adam and Eve and Abraham are true. We could never have imagined how big this story was going to get. And you hear it in the tone, don't you? Well then, this means that God is also for the Gentiles. To bring them life. This is a, an epic moment of awakening. But also a wondrous moment of hope. Because you see, as the Jewish church, you've got to ask yourself, like, when we enter into the world of darkness, the pagan world, what are they going to do? Are they going to, like, kill us? Are they going to reject God? Are they going to hate us more? I mean, you, you can't imagine they'll actually receive the gospel. I mean, you hope they would, but it's not going to happen. And for these guys now, hear it in the sentence. Here's what they're saying. Everything just changed. Everything that we thought to be true has just changed. What we thought to be impossible just became possible. What we thought to be wrong just became beautiful. What we thought to be dangerous just became mission. What we thought we should not, could not possibly dream of doing, we just got called into. It's unbelievable. And so they say, He's for them too, not just for us. Now, I, I want to be honest with you. This is a beautiful moment, incredible moment of awakening. Everybody's like, woo, he's for the Gentiles. For the rest of the book of Acts, they argue over this issue. They can't figure out how on earth to deal with the Gentiles. They argue about what they should do with the Gentiles, where the Gentiles should go or shouldn't go, what should they turn the Gentiles into. As a matter of fact, it gets so crazy that Paul writes a letter to a church that is in Scripture to tell them, stop trying to make them Jewish. Stop. This is not what God wanted. We don't get to go to the Gentiles and say, you don't eat like us, dress like us, act like us, speak like us. Here's how you do that. You don't require them to become you, and that's how they're saved. They are saved because they know Jesus just like you do. So stop trying to conform everything to your likeness and conform it to his likeness, which includes you conforming. And so suddenly, there is this great turmoil and battle that comes with the beautiful missional story that suddenly goes, oh, this doesn't feel good, feel right, feel anything. The Gentiles are weird people. They are not our people. And so now suddenly... Oh, he's for the Gentiles. That's the moment where you celebrate the, 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 the great missional call in your life, right? Go rescue these people. Oh, God, thank you so much. Then they come. Your, your co-workers, your, your, your children, your, your, and they come and you're like, oh, they're not like us. I, I think 
In some weird way, I think the church in Jerusalem assumed that God would take all the Gentile people now and turn them into Jews. I really do. Oh, that's awesome. Jesus came to Cornelius. He's going to suddenly start acting like us. I, I think, honestly, I assumed that about my world, right? I'm going to go and bring from another world for beautiful human beings into my world, and overnight, instantly, God will conform them to be just like me. All the time, energy, and effort I have poured into the four little human beings that have been with me a long time, my other four beautiful human beings will become just like them in three or four days. Because as soon as God brings them into my beautiful home, they will go, ah, and become like us. Uh, no. No, but it's, it's not supposed to be that way. I had it all wrong, you see. Because what God is actually doing is he's changing them and he's changing us so that we can all be more like him. And so you start going, this is not going to be simple or easy. It's going to be complex and difficult, but it's still right and beautiful. And so as the Gentile world is grafted into the Jewish world, it is a whole new world that begins to emerge. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And we ought to pay close attention to the story. One, because the book of Acts is for us, right? More perhaps than any other book before it, the book of Acts is for us in this sense. All the other books before it are deeply for us to recognize the story of God and to see the path of redemption through Jesus Christ for us. But a book that describes us, that says, this is your life now. This is what you should expect. This is how you should live. If there's a book for that, this is that book, the book of Acts. Luke is saying, now that you've been redeemed by the incredible work of Jesus and empowered by the incredible Holy Spirit, here's what you should expect your life is going to look like. So we ought to pay close attention to what's happening here in the church as the cataclysmic collision between the Jewish world of protection, isolation, and looking out going, ah, is colliding with the Gentile mess coming in and the gospel is redeeming all of it. How do we enter into that world? What do we do with that world? I think in large part, one of the tendencies we tend to live with in our Christianity is that we become, like the Jewish people, very protective and very preservative of our safe place that is our little Christian world, and we keep ourselves and everyone that's in our world away from the dark, evil world out there because it's coming to get us. We live like that. We don't even know it. And part of it is out of a right heart, just like the Jewish people. I don't want to fall into sin. I don't want to be messed up. I don't want to be like them. But what we end up doing is we're living the story of the old way instead of the story of the new and wondrous way. And so what happens is secretly deep down, it is not us for them. It is us against them, against the culture, against the politics against the world, against what's going on around us. We are against them and we fight them because we are right and they are crazy. And that's how we begin to live. We don't even realize it, but it happens in us. And so born out of us becomes this strange life where we look at the culture and we see them as the enemy. 
Mark Driscoll, who is a pastor out of Seattle, a Mars Hill Church, uh, and one of the voices in our current culture that speaks to the movements in culture that we should be aware of, because Seattle and California tend to taste things before the rest of the country do. Uh, he wrote a book just recently called Called to Resurgence, and in the book, after much research, his premise of the book is that the U.S. of A. has moved over the last 15 or 20 years into a post-Christian culture. Just like Europe has found itself in for many years now. The difference was that in Europe, the move took a hundred or so years of slow trickle. Here in America, it was like a switch that just turned and it had been coming. And so he writes this book to say, we ought to expect some dramatic changes in the realities of our world here in the U.S. You see, 15 years and beyond that, before that, to be part of the church, part of Christianity was extremely beneficial on every communal level. It's what we call civil Christianity. If you were a shop owner or a politician or a uh, you were someone in the community that wanted to network. If you if you weren't in the church, people kind of, I don't know. Like, you don't go to church? I don't know. Can I trust you? Because somehow church and Christianity was synonymous with character and trust. Well, that is all but gone in the mist now. There is actually very little benefit to a politician or anybody else to be connected to the Christian world. Uh, if It's not a detriment yet, but it's certainly of no benefit. And so slowly but surely, our culture is going to shift, is shifting, and it's going to become more and more foreign to the world in which we live. And then eventually it will become not just foreign, but it will become hostile toward the realities because we will be seen as primitive, old, and eventually religious fanatics who are trying to mess with everything. And as the culture shifts in that direction, you can feel it in you, don't you? Our first instinct is to do one of two things, either to retreat or to fight. To fight! Oh, we'll become better at fighting. We'll become louder. We'll become stronger. We're going to get in there, and we're going to show the enemy what we are and who we are. And that is exactly what this beautiful story tells us not to do. It says, no, 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 no. You don't get it. You see? They're not your enemy. You are not supposed to be against them. You're supposed to be for them. God always intended his people to be for those who were outside of his freedom. To be after them. To be lovers of their souls. And to be there with them. That was always God's intent for us. So this means we have to change our mindset from being against the world to being for the people in the world. This means we have to start shifting some ideas. And the first is this, our safe places have to become shared spaces now, they just do. We have a, traditionally kept our biblical community as a very safe space where we don't allow any of the dark, yucky stuff in. And if you do come in here, you've got to dress like us, act like us, talk like us, don't look differently, don't speak differently. And if you do something that's in our bad list, then we're very skeptical of you and go, should we let them stay? And in our kinds of churches like this one that's a little more loose on that, when we get into our Bible studies, that's where that happens, right? I just need a little safe place with five people I've spent 23 years with. I know them deeply, and we share Scripture together. We do it once a week. It's a Bible study. We call it Life Group. Is there anything wrong with that? No, not particularly, except for this. 
that it continues to feed on some level that we still live in a place where there's, there's, there's us and, and, and there's them and we need to stay safe and on occasion pop into their world and be a voice of mission. Come to Jesus. Oh, back in Bible study. Thank goodness. And we do that. We sit in our Bible studies and we talk about it. Oh, my week in the workplace was horrible. Those people are crazy. They try to kill me. I briefly shared the gospel under my breath across a cubicle. And I think Jesus is working. But I'm just glad to be back with you guys. Now, understand that we need safe places where we are sharing the gospel with each other. Totally. But those spaces have to become shared on some level. Not just exclusive you know, it's one of the shifts we've worked on here at Mosaic and are working on at Mosaic. We have shifted our life groups into missional communities. And you may think, oh, that's semantics. It's the new hot buzzword, you know, missional community. Everyone's doing them. They're so awesome. But for us, it was deep shift philosophically to what we need to be as a church because we're discovering in the book of Acts a call that is beyond anything we could have imagined. We are starting to learn together here that in our spaces that are safe, there needs to be a portion of that space that is devotional, that is intimate, that is awesome, that soul feeds us and soul cares for us because we cannot die under the weight of mission and not care for our souls. But that space also includes now a sharing space in the social environment where we are saying, my missional community is going to a movie on Wednesday night. My missional community is doing a barbecue. My missional community is going to a soccer game with my kid and we invite someone from the larger community to come and share our space and will it be a little messy yeah you might be actually standing around and some words might come in the middle of that soccer game and you go whoa (gasps) hold my child's ears don't worry God is bigger than those words but God is calling us to bring into our safe places the Gentile world to say, we're for you, not against you. We love you, don't hate you. And in our serving spaces, missional community is designed to go serve now, but not to serve alone. You know, if you invite people that don't know Jesus to come and serve the homeless or care for some children in an orphanage, they usually say yes. Because they're like, yeah, I want to do that. That sounds like a really feel-good experience. I'm in. Who cares if the motives are wrong? It doesn't matter. They're sharing your space, my space, our space, and we are sharing theirs. And together we begin to learn not to be against them, but to be for them. On this retreat that Brooke and I spent some time with this week, God spoke to both of us in incredible and deep ways, showed up for my wife in unbelievable ways and strengthened her in awesome places very excited about what God is going to spill out now. But in me also did some incredible transforming work. And one of the biggest things God did among others, but one of the biggest things that God just laid on my heart over and over again, day after day on the prayer walks and the quiet benches and the times with him was this. Renaud, your battle is not against flesh and blood, man. Your children are not your enemy. The people around you in your community are not your enemy. There is an enemy behind them that is trying to take them and he is against them and he is against you and he is against your wife and he is against every person you care about and love. And you need to start seeing past the flesh and blood. 
if you've ever had a bunch of kids when they're little especially, but then when they get teenagers again and then at 25 again, I think at 45 again, it's a constant run. They feel like your enemy a lot, don't they? Oh my gosh, I'm going to so conform your behavior because you are such an enemy. But God calls us and says, no, no more. Because I have not empowered you to fight flesh and blood. I have empowered you to fight principalities and powers in strong places. And the weapons that I have given you to fight with are not weapons of the flesh. They are weapons powered by God to bring down the strong places of the principalities and powers and dark places. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that. And as I entered back into the space here, even studying this story was just so deeply moved once again to realize the privilege that we have to come and battle in the same playing field that Jesus battled in for us. That's why we do all this. Not because we think it's a great idea or it feels good or it's going to rescue some person. God does all the rescuing anyway. We do it because that's exactly what Jesus came and did for us. When Jesus came here to this planet, I'll tell you how he should have come. Just being up front, scripture. He should have come to take us out, to destroy us. Do you know why? Do you know who we were? We were his enemies. How can you say that, Renault? I'm not. The Bible actually does. Romans says, while we were still his enemies, he gave himself for us. God came not to destroy us, but to redeem us from the one who had made us God's enemy. And now God is calling us into the same story. The Gentiles are not your enemy. They were never the problem. The gods behind those Gentiles, the demonic powers, they were the problem. And you did not have it in you to battle on that place, but you do now because I have empowered you with my Holy Spirit and I've sent you to go and love the people that are captivated by the demonic realities of our world. Love them. If we are going to change the world, we should not become better fighters, learning to fight a better fight, but we should become people that learn to love in a bigger way. Because Jesus saved us, not by the sword, but by the love that he demonstrated in his death and resurrection. And that's our privilege our story. And as I stare into this one, as I hear the words of those circumcision party guys going, oh my goodness, they glorified God and said, well, I guess he's for the Gentiles too. May that linger with us this week. In every context we find ourselves, when we're at the workplace or in the neighborhood or that neighbor who's backstabbing crazy and reports our dog barking every night or that work person who's trying to take our job and is manipulative and crazy or that child in our house that we're like, oh my goodness, Ah, military school, how soon? May God come to us and whisper to us, 
they are no longer the enemy. You can go and fight what is behind them. See and fight and love them because I have called you into the homes of the broken and into the world of the Gentiles because you were once one of them and called out by the work of another who followed the call. So may we live on mission because Jesus has empowered us to do that. And may we constantly find our soul care and strength in the devotional beauty of being with Him regularly. Let's pray. God, it really is extraordinary to stand back and watch your story unfold through the book of Acts and actually literally see with our very own eyes the fulfillment of the promises you made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, and to so many others along the way that you were coming to redeem the human story, not the Jewish story. And that the Jewish people were a part of the human story and part of our story just as we are part of their story. And so we have each played our part in your great and wondrous unfolding story. I just want to thank you personally, God, that you saw fit to send Peter into the home of Cornelius the Gentile. Because, God, if that moment had never happened, then I would not be here. I would be lost to you, perhaps never even brought into existence. But because you sent Peter, I am free. And would you remind us, God, that the very stories you're sending us into now, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our local and global communities, even in our homes, are not just stories that are about us, for us. They're not small stories, God. They are stories that will have implications and ripples for generations and generations to come. May we not be a church that learns to fight a better fight, but a church that learns to love bigger, to risk more of ourselves for the sake of those whom you are inviting us to be part of. Help us not to be against the people of the world, but help us to be for them and against the powers and principalities and strong places that are manipulating the human race into its destruction. God, rise up in us. Meet us where we need to be met. Call us into deep Sabbath rhythms and devotions with you that would sustain the most unbelievable missional lives. And then give us the courage to hear your voice when you call us into the homes that are against better judgment. Help us, empower us to change the world. We love you, Jesus. Amen.